0: Let us look at Philippians chapter number two. I want to talk to you a little bit this morning about spiritual unity, which I'm calling All for One and One for All. Uh, I was a bit of a nerd growing up, and in many respects, I still am. Uh, I just, uh, here's how I am now. I'm a nerd that has just developed uh, a like and a fondness for sports. That's, that's who I am at my core. I'm still a nerd, though, and I read a lot of books growing up. That was my favorite hobby, was actually to read And my mother got me turned on to these books called Great Illustrated Classics. They're like that thick because there's a picture on every other page, a full picture. And the font is like size 38. So it seems like this massive book, like you're reading a Bible. But it takes like an hour and a half to read this book. But it's all these classics of literature that were made for like elementary age kids. So as an elementary kid, you know, third, fourth, fifth grade, I was reading White Fang, and and Treasure Island, and Great Expectations, and one of the books that was my favorite that I read uh, was The Three Musketeers, and I probably read The Three Musketeers half a dozen times in the elementary Great Illustrated Classic form, and if you're familiar with that story at all, you know that The Three Musketeers have this call, this motto that embodies them all for one and one for all. And you know the story where D'Artagnan comes along and he wants to, first he wants to fight Athos and Porthos and I forget who the third musketeer was. Anyone know his name? All right, good. You didn't read it either. Some, somebody inevitably does. But, uh, but he comes along and they join. But there's this, this call that embodies that, that book and the driving theme is that there's going to be this group of people and all for one, the group is going to support every individual. When the individual needs it, the whole group is going to come alongside. And the individual is saying, to be part of the group, I'm going to support the group as a whole. And there's this commonality that everyone has where they're putting each other first and they're serving each other and they're loving each other. And there's this harmony inside of that group. They're kind of like the original boy band of the late 1800s, the the three musketeers are. And they they have great harmony. And that is really what Paul's about to say here in Philippians 2. He's going to try to call the church to unity and to harmony and to ask them to not be petty, not grumble, not bicker, not fight with each other, which apparently is happening a little bit in the Philippian community. And so he turns the corner, he ends chapter number one, and he goes from withstanding persecution from without of the church, and now he turns inward and says, let's begin to heal some wounds of strife and discord that are within the church. And we'll read uh, four verses together. Philippians 2, look at verse number one. If there be any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any bowels and mercies fulfill ye my joy. Paul, what's your joy? What would make you happy? That you be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in loneliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others." Let me pray and we'll tackle this text together next week. Before we tackle this text, I do just want to remind you that the congregation at Philippi that Paul is writing to is a quality church. And really, I feel much like our own church. Paul thought about this church often, and as he wrote to them, his thoughts were extremely positive. It's tough to find ways of correction here in this letter to the Philippians. There was a genuine love bond between Paul and the church at Philippi, uh, these people were generous people. These people had had quality leaders that led them. There was a pattern of obedience that they had worked out in their lives. Paul had joyous memories of them. He was thankful for them. He speaks of their courage. He speaks of their lo- of their love extremely fondly. And there's an obvious lack of doctrinal exhortation in this letter. It's very apparent that this church had their doctrine straight and that there wasn't a deviation from doctrine that really needed to be corrected. So generally, this is a really quality group of people that Paul writes to. They're, they're devoted, they're consistent, they're doctrinally sound. Yet, despite all of that, there seems to be this snake lurking in their midst with some extreme danger. And there's danger that this church would begin to exhibit discord and disunity and conflict and division, and Paul is trying to help them. And it at least helps me to step back and think, how could that be? How could this church be so money? I mean, they're on the ball. They, they have it right. They, they're focused. They're, they're striving together for the faith of the gospel. This church is on the ball. How is it that there's such a danger of unity that he seems to want to kind of constantly prod through this letter, and especially in chapter number two, and I think that perhaps this is the danger of every healthy church. Certainly it can be the danger of an unhealthy church where people are acting in a carnal way, but even in a church where people are spiritually minded, it is when people are in earnest, it is when people take their faith seriously, and they're eager to carry out their ministry for Jesus, and they're eager to, uh, to push forward with enthusiasm. It's perhaps in those moments that people are most apt to kind of clash up against each other. That the more zeal that there is for the things of the Lord, there is this equally potent danger that people will collide with each other. So the fact that a church, or even I would say our church, is zealous for the things of the Lord does not preclude the possibility that there will be no disunity. In many ways, the more zeal that there is, it heightens the possibility of people locking horns with each other and caring deeply and passionately about something. So you, I, you, the Lord wants spiritual zeal. Uh, I hate spiritual apathy, and I believe the Lord does as well. You you don't want spiritual apathy, but if there is this zealousness, just understand you may stand a greater risk of being divisive. And I think Paul knows this. So he writes to this church and tells them, look, I want you to be unified, but it is, this text is so much deeper than just a list of things to do and just don't be divisive and get along. It is so much deeper than that, and you have to understand Paul's logic on this. I've preached from this text a number of occasions uh, in previous years, I don't think ever to our church, but in different settings, And I never quite understood the true logic and the true motives behind this until studying this over the past couple weeks. And it is beautiful. It's flawless. His logic is flat-out awesome. And I want you to see that. I'm going to start with that. Just the motives that undergird spiritual unity. Why should we be spiritually unified? That's a fair question. If Paul is going to tell people to be unified, be one for all, all for one, Why should we do this? It's not just because God said so. It's deeper than that. And he says in verse number one, if there be therefore any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the spirit, if any bowels and mercies, fulfill ye my joy. That word if there literally means since there is. It's like saying if it's springtime, it's time to plant flowers. So since it is, and he lists four specific things that are motives for unity. And first he gives consolation in Christ. If there be therefore any consolation in Christ. Consolation literally means encouragement. It's a word paraclesis. It means to come alongside someone and to help them. The Holy Spirit is called the paraclete, the one who comes alongside and helps us. And Paul is saying, if you are in Christ, have you not experienced his consolation and comfort? If you're in Christ, have you not experienced that he comes alongside you when you need him? that he is a wonderful counselor, that you can cast all your care upon him because he cares for you, that you can look at Jesus, who is in in all points tempted as we are, and because of that temptation, he can now succor us or comfort us. That now in Christ, you should know if there is, and Paul's saying, we know that there is. I, I felt this, church, I know that you felt this, that there actually is comfort and consolation in Christ. You've received help from Christ. I know you have. That's what he's saying. He moves on to the second one and says, comfort of love. If there be any consolation in Christ, if there be any comfort of love. He's saying, you've, see, you've received consolation from Christ. You've received the comfort from the love of God. Have you not? Is it, is it not helpful to think about the unconditional, unfailing, unwavering love of God? To read Romans 8 and to understand that we're persuaded That neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, height, depth, nor any other creature is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That should be comforting. That should be helpful. That should do something for your heart. He says, if you've received any fellowship of the Spirit, communion of the Spirit is what he says. He moves from the, the consolation in Jesus, the love that's in the Father, now the fellowship that's in the Spirit. And he says, look, If you've experienced the Lord, then you know what it's like to have fellowship in the Spirit. We're all baptized with one Spirit into one body. If you're a Christian, you're a temple of the Holy Ghost. We're all Spirit carriers, as it were. The Spirit desires unity. Elsewhere, the the unity in the church is actually called the unity in the Spirit. And Paul's saying, look, have you experienced this? And it's a rhetorical question. He knows they have. Have you experienced comfort from Jesus? Have you experienced help from the love of God? Have you experienced the fellowship of the Spirit? can Can you identify with this? There's a very Trinitarian structure here. This is extremely similar to how Paul ends actually his letter to the Corinthians, his second letter to them, when he says the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Ghost be with you all. And what Paul is doing here is he's setting the stage for his talk on unity, and he's talking not about an outward unity that is contrived of man's ideas, but he's talking about an inward unity, and he's drawing on that. He's not saying this is something that's externally controlled. This is something that should be internally compelling, and there's a difference there. You could, I could this morning, I probably should have brought one with me. I could have a bag of marbles. And if I had a bag of marbles, a, a plastic bag of them, in many respects those would be unified inside of that bag. They would be together. There would be a, a sort of cohesion that's there that they would be rubbing up against each other. But if I cut the outside of the bag, the marbles spill out and they all go their own separate ways. And they're left to their own devices. There's nothing internally compelling in those marbles that bonds them together. But if I was to take a magnet and roll it around in some metal shavings, there would be something that's internally compelling there that those pieces of metal would bond to that magnet because there's something intrinsically valuable there that pulls them together. And Paul is saying, as a church, Philippi, I would say to us as a church, Harvest, we are not to be bonded together in unity by an external bag. It's more than just everyone's signing the same doctrinal confession. It's more than just, well, let's have the same cause and rally around it. Paul is drawing on an internal compulsion that should be inside of us, that should bond us together and is the foundation for unity. It's if you have experienced comfort from Jesus and you've experienced comfort from Jesus and you've experienced comfort from Jesus and you know the love of the Father and you know the love of the Father and you know the fellowship of the Spirit and you know the fellowship of the Spirit, if we all have that common denominator, that should bind us from the inside out. So this this is vastly important to get Paul's logic on this. It's not just, here's your to-do list, don't don't have strife, don't have vainglory, have humility, and get along with each other and put others first, check it off your to-do list. It's no, understand what should motivate us. There should be something inside of us that's pulling us to this unity. But he doesn't even stop there with the, the Father, Son, and the Spirit. He actually makes it a bit personal, and he ends verse number one and says, if there's any bowels and mercies, fulfill ye my joy. Bowels just means compassion. Means affection. We don't really, that's weird to us, but in the first century, especially to the Jewish mind, bowels, that was the seat of emotions. That's where you felt things. That's, you actually, if you read Song of Solomon, he will express in loving terminology that his bowels long for his bride. And we would look at that, like, that's the weirdest pickleball I've ever heard in my life, you know. (laughs) We we think bowels and think peptobismal, but that's not the biblical. That's not how it's used here. It, it's where you felt things from. He said, if we have any affection, if we have any feeling for each other, then make me happy. Not, not just for what the Lord's doing, but church, do you feel anything for me? I feel something for you. Do we have a love bond that unites us? If you care for me even, do this for me. Take my cup of joy and fill it up. And that's fair. That's fair. Hebrews 13 talks about those that are ruling in in a church, the the pastors and and those that are leading, and it says actually to obey them and to submit yourselves, and it says because they watch for your souls, and they're going to give an account for you, so do this so that they may give an account with joy and not with grief. That that line of thinking is is basically make your leaders happy, and that's actually, that's a a valid attack. And Paul is saying, make me happy. If you love me, make me happy. Okay, Paul, how are we going to make you happy? Well, he's, he's going to tell us through unity, through being together, through being in harmony. And when you, when you piece this all together, it makes such a strong point that has just completely just struck me as I've studied this. His call to unity is not imp- impending punishment. His call to unity is not, let me be heavy handed and tell you there's a lightning bolt coming your way if you don't do this. His call to unity is not, let me hammer you with some judgment. He is moving out of the highest motive of love and gratitude and honor and loyalty to a relationship that we have with Christ and even a relationship that we have with others. And he's basically saying, look, has God been good to you? then act like it and get along with each other. That's basically what he's saying. If you felt anything from God, if you felt the comfort, if you felt the fellowship, if you felt the love, if God has done something for you, shouldn't that spur us to give something back to to Christ, which is near and dear to his heart, which is the unity and the love of his people for each other? Paul is actually saying this this is an audacious act of ingratitude. If you can't be unified with each other, it's not, if you don't do this, well, then, you know, something bad's going to happen to you. He's drawing on the relationship and saying, don't just take, 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 take from God and never give anything back to him. Actually, give back to him unity with other people. Give back to him care for other people. If you're a parent or if you've had parents, which I think would get all of us, really, (laughs) then you probably have experienced this at some point in time. You probably, with your children or your parents did to you, they, uh, numerous occasions, told you, if you don't do this, then this will happen. Don't clean your room, you're going to be grounded. Don't do this, I'm going to take the car keys for a week. Don't, you know, we, we get that. But the times where my parents were most forceful in their discipline of me was not with, with those as the motives. On the select few occasions that I did something wrong, they were very rare, <laughs> but on the select few occasions that I did, my parents, a time or two sat down, maybe it was at lunch, maybe it, was, it, wasn't, it wasn't in the heat of the moment. They sat down and basically said this. Mark, do you know that we love you? Do you get that we, we really care for you? We've done our best. We're not perfect, but we've done our best to provide for you. We've done our best to give you a home and clothes and, and food and to give you love. And when you have been down... We've tried to be there. We've tried to come alongside. We've tried to help you through those times. We've tried to, we've tried to grow you. We've tried to help. We've operated with your best interest in mind. We've done this. Mark, it seems reasonable that you would kind of make us happy and do this. This is disappointing. And this is, this is how Paul is approaching the Philippian church. Out of the context of relationship, he's saying, since all these things are true, Since there is consolation in Jesus, since there is comfort from the love of God, since there is fellowship in the Spirit, since we do have affection for each other, if all that's true, then operate in a way that's going to bring me personally and and more importantly, God, that's going to bring him joy. Do what's going to be near and dear to his heart. You say, what is that? Well, we've already said unity, harmony, but let's spell it out a little further. Here Here are the marks that he gives to them of their spiritual unity. What would this look like. Verse number two, Paul just he piles up modifiers, and he says the same thing, really, four different ways. He says, fulfill you my joy that you be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. In one way or another, this should resonate with you. We have all experienced the positive or the negative outworking of this. Either you've been a part of a group of people, a, a team, or a company, or a church, that the people, they were they were unified, they were together, they were pulling in the same direction, there was this this camaraderie that was unique that you loved to be a part of. Or you've experienced the negative aspect of this, that you were part of a marriage or a company or a church where things were fractured and factional and people fought with each other and things were divisive and everything eroded. One way or another, you, you get what this looks like in a negative or a positive way. And Paul says, let me just give you the mark simply, They're they're very simple. It's it's that there'd be harmony. It's what it all speaks to. That there would be a harmony in and amongst the church. And he actually, he bookends this with being like-minded. He says first, be like-minded. Then he ends it. The fourth one he gives is be of one mind. Now now that's a mindset. It's not saying every single person have the same opinion on everything because we're never going to get there. It's impossible. You, we're, we're a very eclectic bunch of people with a bunch of backgrounds and a bunch of opinions, and, and that's, that's OK to have your own opinion. It's not OK to have a different mindset. Let me see if I can illustrate this. In a, about a month, my wife and I, we will leave for our little summer vacation for about a week, and we'll head down to the coast of California for a week. So on June the 10th, I'll miss you, I love you, but you won't see me, I'll miss you. We will be in North Carolina. I already know what's going to happen on June the 3rd. We're going to go through church that day, and after church, and after graduation for the high school and those sorts of things, we're going to leave, and we're going to be in a drive. And I can already tell you what's going to happen. My wife is going to want to drive to North Carolina as fearlessly and as fast as she possibly can, and she will want no stops along the way. Cruz will be crying, and she'll tell him to change his own diaper. I'll be hungry, and she'll tell me to get over it and to keep moving. She will want to stop at a maximum for about two minutes to go through a drive through so we can get a bag of food and put it next to us and, and eat while we drive. Now, I will want to drive and, and be strategic about this and get there. But when it's time to eat, I want to take a break for 20 minutes. I want to stop. I wanna... Now, who's in Maggie's camp? Who's with Maggie? Get there as fast as possible. Who's in Mark's camp? All right, I think I won. Uh, I'm not sure, actually. That was a very close call, Okay. We will have a difference of opinion, and you could even say a difference of mindset, that could lead to contention. Well, it would be silly, but it could. It maybe has in the past. (laughs) It could lead to contention. Now, I want to follow the Bible, right? How do, I, how do I be of the same mind? How do I be like-minded? Do I begin to pray, Lord, between now and June 3rd, change the desires of my heart and make me just not want to stop and want to go. And my wife begins to pray, Lord, change my mind and help me to be someone that wants to stop for 20 minutes. Let's pl- suppose God did answer those prayers, then we'd still be the opposite of each other. It wouldn't work. We're not going to have the same opinion. It's, it's just, it's never going to happen. We're always going to feel that way. But We can have the same mindset. If I enter into June the 3rd in our trip with the mindset of we're starting vacation, it would be absolutely silly to be petty and to fight over if we stop for food or not. That would be silly. Why would we want to start our vacation out on the wrong foot? I will gladly prefer my wife. I will gladly say, babe, it doesn't matter. We can just keep driving. It's no big deal. We can get the food. If I have that mindset, of preferring her and putting her first. And she has the mindset of, well, it, no, it doesn't matter. We can stop for 20 minutes and we can get a break. If we both enter into it with a mindset of humility and lowliness and seeking to put someone else first, we won't collide. There will be, now, our opinions will still be the same, but our mindset will be elevated. We will be in unison, and that vacation will get off to the right foot as long as the van doesn't break down or, or the kids don't go crazy or something else happens. And that's what's needed. That's what Paul is is saying here, the harmony, the mindset, not necessarily the same opinion, but all having the same mindset, which he's going to elaborate for us here in just a moment. But this comes from our relationship with the Lord. He's already said that in verse 1. But just in case it wasn't clear enough, I'll read you Romans 15. Now, the God of uh, patience and consolation grants you, God actually grants you to be like-minded one toward another according to Christ Jesus. That ye may with one mind and one mouth glorify God, even the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. The ultimate unifier, the ultimate mindset, Paul's about to walk through it for half the chapter here, is going to be the cross of Jesus Christ. It it unifies us. We look at that, the humility that he exhibited, and we take that mind. And we live that out, and we have that mindset from the Lord given to us as, as literally a sheer act of grace that we take that and we embody that and we have the same mind. But Paul, he says more than just the same mindset. He says that we should uh, be like-minded, but we should also have the same love. This, this is a mark of spiritual unity. What's it mean to, to have the same love? It, it means you love everybody the same. Now, this tells you that love is far more than emotion because you're not emotionally attracted to everybody the same. That does not, nor should that happen. That's not going to. But if there is mutual sacrificial service, which really is the best definition of love you could get, I put someone else first and I sacrifice for them. God so loved that he gave. If that is is the love that you're exhibiting, then you can have it the same for everybody. Then you can love everyone the same and want to selflessly sacrifice on their behalf. He also says being of one accord. This is an interesting word. The actual Greek word here, it's the only time it's used in the New Testament. And if you study other Greek literature, we have yet to find this word used in even other Greek literature before this moment. Many scholars believe Paul just invented a word. And and the the best rendering that you could probably give would be to be one-souled. Paul is pressing into the idea, not in a a lovey-dovey husband-wife way, but he's, he's pressing the idea that we should actually be soulmates with each other that more, more than just our mind being the same, that, that all of our being, with all of us, we should be moving in the same direction and wanting to be unified. Every single piece of us should be there. And if, if this unity is achieved, there will, marks will come out. These marks will, will be there. They'll be exhibited. You'll have people that have the same mindset. You'll have people that love everyone the same. You'll have people that are pulling in the same direction with, with their whole being, and no longer would it be, well, I'd love to serve in that ministry, but, you know, so-and-so's over there, and I don't want to be around her. I don't want to be around him, so I'm not going to serve there. Switch my shift. I don't want to be around th- that. That would be non-existent. There wouldn't be any, well, I'm not going to sit in that section. They're in that section, so I'm going to sit over there as far away as I can get from them in that section because I don't, I don't want to be in the same orbit as them. Well, I, I didn't get the solo. Or I didn't get the job, or I didn't get the, the position, or whatever, so I'm going to protest that stuff is squashed. It's done. It's gone. The marks of unity come out in a mindset that's the same, in, in a heartbeat of love that's the same, in, in everyone pulling together in the same direction from the core of their being. And Paul is going to tell us how exactly would this be done. This is where it gets really practical, and this is where it gets really tough, actually. You look at this, and you, at least if you're like me, you think, I'm not close to that. I'm growing to do. The means of spiritual unity. How might we do this? He tells us. Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem other better than themselves. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. Paul gives four things here. He says, Let there be no strife. He said there are, if, if true unity is exhibited, there, there'll be no strife, no no factions, no rivalry, no quarrelling, no hassling, no haggling, no fighting, no arguing, no bickering, no contention. Strife is gone, which is listed in Galatians 5 as a work of the flesh. It's not a work of the Spirit. It, it should show us if there is this locking horns with other people that there's, there's something happening there that is not spiritual in nature. And this, honestly, this is one of the most difficult jobs of, of being on the pastoral team at the, her, at the church here. And, and I think all the pastors would agree with this, that you have a lot of people that feel passionately about their causes or their ministries, which is awesome. Many of you would feel very deeply and passionately about however you're serving the Lord through our local church, which we want 100%, but sometimes people can get so passionate and so focused and locked and loaded on their own ministry or their own project, but but they begin to be so concerned with their own agenda that they begin to lock horns with other people and to think that, Well, everything should revolve around me. And all of the ministries should revolve around my ministry. And everything that happens in the context of the local church, I need to be number one, and this needs to be at the forefront. And I have my spot on the calendar first, and I need to, and and this, this in spiritual ways, like people wanting to serve the Lord through the local church, this even sometimes mushrooms up into strife and into contention because, really it's because we're not having the same mindset, we're not seeking the mind of the Lord. And Paul says, don't have, "Don't have that strife." And then he says, "No vainglory." And this really is the root of strife. Only by pride comes contention. Paul is saying, "Let there be no strife. Let there be no vain glory. Don't, don't have any ugly self-promotion that pushes yourself up in the eyes of other people by stu- stepping on the neck of someone else. Don't seek your own personal glory. In the South Pacific, I've, I've never been there, but I hear that there's a bird called the Mimi bird. And the Mimi bird is called the Mimi bird because it, it only has one song that it can sing and it goes like this, Mimi, Mimi. <laughs> that, that's its call, Mimi. And I've never seen one of those with feathers, but I've talked to quite a few of them over the years in the church world. There's a lot of little Mimi birds flying around wanting it to all be about me and all about vainglory. And this is, this is tough for all of us if we're halfway honest. The truth is we have a cruel despot that wants to rule and reign in our hearts. And he's dangerous. And if you want to know more about him or her, you just need to look in the mirror. King's self loves to reign your heart. And he has done that for a long time. You were born naturally with King Self on your heart where you cried and you complained or you whined and everything was about you just as a little infant. It's the way it went. And as you became four and five and then adolescents and then teen years, a lot of people through a lot of strategy tried to root that out of you and tried to push that out of you and tried to tell you to not be so self concerned and not so self enamored and not so self aggrandizing. But if we're honest that root is still there, and it's very difficult to get self off the throne of our heart. And self will even make Christ prime minister as long as he can still be king. And a lot of Christians live there, where I will, yeah, I'll, I'll have, I'll, Jesus, he'll be up there, he'll be, he'll be pretty high, and I'll, I'll live for others some, but if you are honest, I am still on the throne of my own heart, and it's... It's nasty, it's problematic because the glory belongs to God. And the chief end of man is to glorify him. And when we begin to live out of our own vain glory, we're glory thieves. We're stealing that which belongs to God instead of deflecting. Now we're absorbing the praise and the glory. And many, this is especially tough for our culture. Many Christians are are not just self-centered. Many Christians are proud of being self-centered. That they somehow find some sort of satisfaction out of living for themselves. And we tell ourselves these sorts of things that are rooted in vainglory all the time. We tell ourselves that we owe it to ourselves to get this or buy that or have that vacation that's as good as them. We deserve a break. We should have it our way. i sold a lot of hamburgers over the years. Have it your way. You just need to be the best you that you can be. A woman's right to choose. That's rooted, that's rooted in vainglory. That's rooted in self. Of course, we never finish the sentence. A woman's right to choose life or death is how it should finish. I owe it to myself to be happy in my marriage. I'm, I'm not trying to be mean, but you owe it to yourself to keep your vows before God, not to be happy in your marriage. That's, that's vainglory working itself out and us telling ourselves things that are not true trouble comes our way why me why not you why not me like what makes me or you so special that nothing bad should ever befall us all of all of that is self-promotion and self-centeredness that is coming out of our lives and the truth is if christ is on the throne self is on the cross and we don't want to get on the cross we will fight ourselves tooth and nail to keep self off of that cross. But when you get to a point where you say Christ rules and reigns on my throne, you don't get to be number two. You don't get to be some sort, of, some sort of administrator in your own life. You get on the cross. This is exactly what Galatians 5 says. They that are Christ have crucified the flesh with the affections and lusts. If we live in the Spirit, let us walk in the Spirit, and let us not be desirous of vain glory. And the truth is, you're never going to crucify yourself. Self needs to be on the cross, but you may get one nail in your feet and one nail in your hand, but there's going to be another hand dangling that you're not going to figure out. This is why the motives of this are so important. That you have to look at what God has done in your life and ask him to continue to work in your life. This is why Paul's going to move into the mind of Christ and he's going to walk through the the humbling of Jesus and the crucifixion of Jesus and all of that for us living selflessly in an effort to get us to realize who we are and who God is and that self-promotion and vainglory should be done away with. And Paul says no strife, no vainglory. He also says that there should be lowliness of mind. You could call this humility, and unity is born out of humility. It's interesting, this term, lowliness of mind, was a term of derision in the first century. No normal Greco-Roman person thought that humility was a virtue to be admired. Jesus is revolutionary in this when he steps on the the scene and teaches his disciples to serve each other and to take up a towel and to to minister to each other and wash each other's feet and to take a position of humility and and the last shall be first and the first shall be last. That was revolutionary. No one naturally in the culture would have said, lowliness of mind, let's pursue this, let's go after this. We love this. No one would have thought that. But Paul says, as a Christian, we should stand in utter contradiction to the world and not vainglory, not self-promotion but lowliness of mind understanding who we are, who God is, who others are, and to serve them and to think of ourselves very, very little. Edward said that nothing sets the man out of the devil's reach so much as humility, and I'd have to agree. He also says esteem others better, and lowliness of mind esteeming others better than themselves. Now, this is, this is not a false modesty, so don't take this too far. Loathingness of mind and esteeming others better than yourself does not mean that you lie to yourself about yourself. All right, so let's suppose that I could sing decently. I really probably can't, but I'm going to give myself, just for sake of the illustration, a B+. Plus, all right? I'm a B+. Plus. We'll give, I'll pick on Kathy because Kathy can sing well. She's very musically inclined. Let's say that Kathy was tone deaf and she could not sing at all lowliness of mind, esteem others better than themselves. So this means that I tell myself, Mark, you're not a B plus. You're an F. You're the worst singer there ever was. And I esteem others better than myself. Kathy, you're tone deaf, but you, you are great. You're the greatest singer in the history of the world. I love your singing so much. Th- that's false modesty. That's, that's not accurate. Now you're lying to yourself. So this lowliness of mind and esteeming others better does not mean that you cease to recognize the gifts and the abilities and the talents or the money or whatever God has given to you you don't cease to recognize that and act like it doesn't exist you actually live out of that and you use those as tools for the Lord but all the while you do it not for your own self but for other people putting the Lord first putting others first and trying to seek their good this really is, is a preferential treatment of other people you go first you can have my seat. I'm 70 and older, but you're 70 and older. So you can have that parking stall with the 70 and older sign. It's prefer them over me. I didn't get the lead role. I didn't get the solo, but I'm glad that they did. This didn't happen to me, but you know what? It happened to somebody else. I'm glad that they got a promotion. I'm glad that they got a new car. I'm glad that they got to do that. I'm not jealous. I'm not envious. I actually am esteeming others better. I'm glad that they did. Lewis said of this, he said, it's like a man who builds the most beautiful cathedral in all the world. And he steps back, and he knows it's the most beautiful, beautiful cathedral in all the world, but he would have been just as happy if someone else would have built it. And Paul is saying, have lowliness, humility of mind. Esteem others better than yourself. This is exactly what Jesus did. Jesus, in one of the ultimate acts of humility, the night before his crucifixion, he washes the disciples' feet. But John is very quick to tell us before he picks up the towel and before he gets the water and before he washes their feet, this is what John says about Jesus. Jesus, knowing that that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he was come from God and that he went to God, he rises from supper and he laid aside his garments and he took a towel and he girded himself. So Jesus has an accurate self-image. He knows God's given all things into his hands. He knows where he came from. He knows where he's going. He knows that he's God. This is not a a false modesty or a false humility. He recognizes exactly who he is and and how he's blessed, but he chooses to take that and to serve others and to think of them nevertheless. This is what Paul's getting after, that we should have a humility in, in putting others first. We should give them preferential treatment. Then he, verse number four, really says the same thing. He elaborates on it. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. There should be this helpfulness that's about us. And I love that he says, also on the things of others. It's not that you can never be concerned about yourself in the sense of, well, I can never go to work or make money for my family. I can never do anything for myself. That's not what he's saying. He's saying that other people should trump your priority and that you should want to include them. Some have said, oh, this is easy for me. Don't look at my own stuff, but look at other people's stuff. Easy. Easy. I see the car that they have, and I want it. I see the house that they have. I look at mine. eh, I want theirs. I look at theirs. I see see the vacation that they took. Paul is not promoting, you know, an envious eye where you eyeball everything that someone else has and you want it. He's saying, look out for number one. That's fine as long as you know you're not number one. It's fine (laughs) to, to say, okay, number one, first and foremost, but that's not you. That's somebody else to prefer someone else. William Booth, you may have heard this illustration before, I don't know, but he founded the Salvation Army, and he got up in years, and they invited him to come back and speak, and he said, I'm age, you know, handicaps, these were, I can't do it. They said, well, you send us a letter, send us a telegram, send us something. So Booth sent them a telegram that was all of one word, which was others. So they got up, and they read the telegram from Mr. Booth at the big convention, others. The end. <laughs> this is really what Paul's saying. That the mind that, that should come out of us, the humility that we should embody, it's going to work itself out in putting others first. And there is such an encouragement in these four verses to rethink and to re-experience all that we have in the Lord. To, to meddle it through again and to ponder again and to re-experience The consolation in Jesus, the comfort from the love of God, the fellowship that we have in the spirit, the affection that we have for other people, rethink, re-experience that and then out of that, flow into rethinking and reorientating your life around other people. And in humility, not strife, not vainglory, choosing to put other people first in verse number one, he gives us a, a great window into how exactly we can do this. But honestly, he's going to continue that thought, and we're going to cover it next week. In verses five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, he's going to walk through the mind of Christ that we should have. But I at least want to give you a sneak peek so that you don't feel lacking this morning in case you're not here next week. How how can this even be possible? You say, Pastor, how this seems laughably impossible. We're we're a big group of people that have theological nuances that we differ on. Many of us have these smoldering resentments from years and decades ago with other people. We have different preferences in leadership styles or, or styles of worship. We have our little cliques of kind of people that I naturally would orbit to and hang out with. We argue about little issues here or there and we have our own opinions. I mean you got two Christians, you have three opinions. How could we possibly get to a point where we have one mind and one heart and one love and there is humility and there is self-sacrifice? How can we get there? And really, it's it's simple. Paul's going to run straight to Calvary. That's why I love the song this morning. He's going to run straight to Calvary. And he's going to say, you park there and you look there, and that should do something for you. I've been to Calvary physically. I've, I've been there. You know what was amazing? No one fought with each other at Calvary. There was not one word of strife. There was not one argument. There was, there was nothing contentious. No one was promoting themselves. We did not stand there at Golgotha with the garden tomb just, just a stone's throw away. We did not stand there and talk about how great we were. It just naturally did not happen that way. We all had this awe of what was done for us, of the love that was given to us, of the sacrifice that was our example, and it resulted in us feeling really, really small, and Jesus feeling really, really big, and honoring him, and praising him, and singing to him, and giving him glory. There was no strife. There was no vainglory. There was a lot of lowliness of mind in exalting him. And this is really where Paul is going to go. He's going to say, no one argues at the foot of the cross. If you got that straight, and you got your eyes on that, and you understand what that is, then this actually becomes pretty easy. It's natural to understand who you are and who God is, and for that to reorientate all of this and begin to act to other people properly. It's when we embrace these these infinite resources that are ours only in Christ that we can Find the capacity to stop our, our selfish grasping for lesser things. And this is, this is what Paul is saying. He's saying, yes, be unified. Be all for one, one for all. No strife, no vainglory, lowliness of mind, esteem others, put others first. He's saying that, but there's a motive and an underpinning that you have to get right. If it's just, well, I'll do it out of duty, aye aye, Captain, you'll never get there. You have to understand has God been good? Let me ask you, has God been good? It was a trick question because it means that you have to act like a Christian. So what are you saying. You felt the consolation? You felt the love? You felt the fellowship? God been good to you? Look at the cross, that awesome? Yeah? Okay, well, you have to do something with that. You have to start to treat other people differently. You have to start to take your unity and promote that and take your differences and downplay them and begin to try to strive together with people.